0: I did get a death threat at the end. I only got one. I mean, that was probably you know quite a low score by most standards.
1: Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast brought to you by JBM and sponsored by Chippercash, an African cross-border payments company trusted by over 4 million users. If you want to be part of their incredible mission to unlock global opportunities and bring Africa together one transaction at a time, then head over to chippercash.com forward slash careers to find out more. And don't forget to also check out our episode with Chipper's founder, Ham Joji. You can find a link to that in the episode show notes. I am so excited to introduce today's 40 Minute Mentor. It is none other than Nick Jenkins, founder of the iconic business Moonpig. Nick is also a former dragon on the BBC's hit show Dragon's Den and an experienced angel investor and philanthropist. In today's episode, Nick shares exclusive insights into the ups and downs of scaling and ultimately exiting Moonpig to Photobox for £120 million in 2011. We also get a unique insight into Nick's early career before Moonpig and how a death threat ultimately brought him back to the UK. He also shares what it's really like to be on Dragon's Den and what happens when the cameras stop rolling, plus his involvement in the charity sector and how he found a new purpose after selling Moonpick. Nick is a legendary founder who shares tons of amazing mentorships. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy the next 40 minutes with the brilliant Nick Jenkins. Nick, welcome to 40 Minute Mentor. How are you? Good, good, thank you. Just back from skiing. Oh, fantastic. Good stuff, good stuff. Well, as we always like to start 40 Minute Mentor, we will do with some quickfire questions. So if you could please finish off these sentences, that would be great. When I was younger, I always wanted to be... Politician. Ah, okay. Any reason
0: why you didn't become one in the end? Well, well, I I then learned what being a politician was like, and and, uh, I I want to be a politician now.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. My first job was
0: my first proper job after university was I set up a a sales division of a forklift truck company in Moscow.
1: Wow, that's a first for this podcast. Interesting, really interesting. Any, how did you end up doing that? That is really different.
0: I spoke Russian, and they were uh, they needed someone who could speak Russian, and um, so it worked.
1: It worked. Fair enough. My biggest achievement in my career to date is I think undoubtedly. Setting up and
0: selling Moonpig has been a, a huge achievement. Difficult to top that one.
1: Absolutely, it's one of the nation's favourite brands. I think so. We uh, can't wait to dig into the story a bit more.
0: It always gives me it gives me a, a, a real joy. You know, whenever I sort of hear the jingle playing on the radio or see it on television, and think, "Wow, I did that! Amazing!" I wish I could be better at time management. Probably, I'm very good. I can be very, very focused for short periods of time. And um I do admire people who can just stay at it constantly. And um but I find I do get fairly easily distracted. Particularly I, I can end up going down YouTube wormholes <laughs> for hours at a time.
1: I can really resonate with that. Yeah, I, I'm the same, but there are certain things that I can just go into real deep focus, but I'm very easily distracted. I'm a bit of a magpie when it comes to interesting new things. Oh, I must uh, check that out.
0: So I was going to say, when I was working moving way, way to get around that was I had my screen facing out into the main office. So that kind of kept me, it kept me honest. It stopped me from looking at at YouTube, because obviously all of my employees could see what I was doing. And um, so, uh, but now with work from home, it all falls apart.
1: That's a very good way of keeping yourself honest, isn't it? Because it, is, it is so easy to get distracted, especially if no one's staring at your screen. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that. My biggest advice is? Uh, oh, probably bacon
0: and cheese croissants. The problem is I fill up the car with petrol and they've got one of those racks of bacon and cheese croissants. In.
1: Oh, dangerous. Far too easy, isn't it? <laughs> and finally, can you share something that we wouldn't learn from your CV? So that could be a perceived failure or some sort of setback that you've learned a lot from
0: main step I could probably have, which actually probably is on my CV, it's just that no one's ever seen my CV, uh, is I, I got two Ds in an A-level. And I often get asked to go and talk at my old school about life and and, and success and so on. I say, well, don't think that your A-levels are going to blight you forevermore. Uh, I mean, if I'd got decent A-levels, I'd probably be a lawyer by now. But I didn't. And it did force me to go and do something else.
1: It's all worked out well in the end. Yeah, I think it's something we've discussed on this podcast before about you know, academics aren't always an indicator to success. And, you know, I think the school system is set up perhaps to kind of laud those that do very well academically and not always support those that learn in different ways. And uh, I think you're a prime example for somebody that may not have got the the top grades, but has obviously gone on to, you know, achieve so much. So I think that's very inspiring for anyone listening to this that might find the traditional way of learning, you know, difficult.
0: I mean, actually, to be honest, I, I got very good GCSE. So I, it's just that when it came to A level, I was spanning around doing other stuff. But what I have learned over time when it comes to recruiting people is that if you want a good number two, actually A-levels probably do matter because that means that they're able to understand the question and deliver and not go and do something completely different. Whereas my approach, I would look at an exam question and I I think that's a bit dull. I think I'll write about something else, which is not helpful in exams. I I did literature and and French and English literature. And there's always something more interesting to write about. Uh, That apparently doesn't work in exams. But so, so I think for as a founder of a business, academic success isn't necessarily an indication that you're going to succeed because sometimes mavericks think slightly differently. But on the other hand, as a number two, I do sometimes look at whether or not someone got straight A's at A level because that's an indication of whether or not they're easy. They can look at the
1: instructions and follow them. Interesting. No, but depends on the kind of. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, well, thank you, Nick. Already, we've we've got some uh, some stuff in there that we're going to dig into more, particularly around the Moonpig story. But before then, before we come on to that, can you tell our listeners a bit about that early working life? And uh, you know, I I read somewhere that you had a death threat that that changed the course of your whole career and your life. So can you tell our listeners a bit about that early part of your career?
0: Well, I, I so I read I read Russian at University and. I was very fortunate that when I finished university, Russian was suddenly a very useful language to have. And I I went off and worked for a year for one company, which was Lansing Linda, the forklift truck company, and set up a a sales operation for them. And then I was headhunted after a year to work for Glencore. Well, it was then Mark Rich became Glencore, the commodity trading company. And, And that was largely because I think they realized it was easier to teach a Russian speaker how to trade commodities than it was to teach a commodity trader how to speak Russian.
1: Yeah, fair enough.
0: And in those, days, in those days, it was essential to speak Russian because nobody really spoke English. And so I was in the right place at the right time for that job. And I did that job for about eight, eight nine years. And it kind of taught, it taught me a number of things. I was very much left to my own devices. It was a big company, but I was left to my own devices to set up this operation. We started out as just me and ended up being a team of probably about 20, 30 people. And it was a very successful trading operation. Uh, we were bringing in sugar and grain and 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 storing it and distributing it across the whole of the former Soviet Union. So that was that was great. Yeah, I, I did get a death threat at the end. I, I only got one. I mean, that was probably you know quite a low score by most standards. Fairly wild west in those days.
1: Jeez, wow! Uh, not something that many people listening, I, I hope, will have uh, experienced before. But was that just the? Was there a particular reason for that? And, and did it just uh, did it just give you like, sort of convince you it was time to exit? stage left and come back to the UK. Well. I've been importing sugar
0: and storing it in warehouses across Siberia. And we had one warehouse owner who, who had about $10 million worth of sugar stored in, in warehouses in a number of different cities. And our inspectors were coming back and saying, they're not waiting for our, our permission to release the sugar because it was technically our sugar. And, and as they paid us, we would release it. to them. And um, anyway, to cut a long story, story, he was just taking it and selling it. And oh, wow. So I had, him, I had his assets in Switzerland frozen. I had him arrested. And uh, it's it, it got, got a bit
1: lovely. Oh so tell us about what happened next, because, you know, ultimately Moonpig has gone on to become the huge success that we all know today. But for anyone that's not familiar with that story, can you tell us a bit about how Moonpig came to existence and what were those early startup years like?
0: Well, it, it came about because I decided to leave Russia. I'd been there for eight or nine years and, and it was probably either time to go home or, or, or become Russian. And I decided to go home. and. I didn't really want to be in the commodity trading business anymore because I'd done that for eight years. And I'd also seen the most exciting years. It's, Russia was a very exciting place to work in 1998. So I came back and thought, I'll start doing something myself. And, and my thought was, I th- tried to think of a number of ideas, and then I went off and did an MBA for a year while I was thinking of ideas. And when I was there, the internet was just beginning to kick off. I know. I mean, it's, it sounds weird when I talk to you know, schools or universities about that now. And they, they, they think of the internet as just something like air that you just breathe, but it was just kicking off. And so I, I figured that if I was going to start a business that I didn't know anything about, it had better be a business that nobody else knew anything about either. So I thought, okay, well, let's definitely do we'll do something with the internet. And then I worked through a process of trying to think what the things that I could do on the internet. And initially I, I thought, well, if I try and sell something like cameras, all that will happen is somebody will eventually men- an algorithm write an algorithm that compares the price of mine with the price of someone else's, and people will just buy on price. And, and all the margins will get squeezed out of that, and that is indeed what happened. There were lots of other things that I, I realized I could have sold online, but they were, if, if anything could be downloaded, people expected it to be free. There was an anticipation that anything that you could download should be free, even if it's software, and that still applies today. Billions of pounds get spent developing amazing apps then get given away for free. And most of them not make any money. And so so giving stuff away for free didn't seem to sound like a good idea. So I needed to find a physical product, which is something that I could, where I could add some value over and above the, the shop, and I could differentiate it from the shop product. And so I, I looked at all the different things that I could personalize. And and then it occurred to me that I used to buy greeting cards and tip X out the caption and just write my own speech bubbles, which were much ruder and much more personal. And, and at the time, digital printing was also coming to, to uh, was maturing. And you could buy a digital printer that, that would print on cardboard at that scale. So those it was those two technologies coming together: the internet plus the digital printing that that meant that that was possible. And and I, I was I was it always reminds me of the importance of luck though because I was you know the time that I was thinking about setting up my own business was the time when the internet was coming to the fore, and and that the 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 goal was wide open. You know the, 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 there were lots of ideas that hadn't been right. had but hadn't been developed. So, uh, so I was very fortunate in with my very fortunate with my timing. That wasn't good timing on my part. That I was just very lucky that I wanted to set up a business at the right time.
1: Ah, oh, but what a fantastic idea, though! And I know, yeah, and anyone that listens to this podcast will have heard many times that the roller coaster of founder life is not all fun, and there are lots of sleepless nights. And I think I read somewhere that sort of four years in, you you almost went bust. So. Must have been a very, very stressful time. Can you, can you tell us a bit about what happened then and, and how did you manage to turn things around? It's very easy
0: to set up an online business. It's very easy to set up a website to be selling something. It's very easy to do that. The hardest thing of all is getting customers and keep and, and holding on to them. and, and that, I think that applies to most businesses getting customers is the hardest thing and hanging on to them is even harder. and And for the first few years, we couldn't find a scalable form of customer acquisition. So, we couldn't find anything that we could throw money at. And honestly, in, in even four years down the road, if someone had said, I'll give you $10 million to, throw, to, to, to grow this business, I, I wouldn't have known what to do with it. Because, because if your cost of if everything that we tried in terms of cost of customer acquisition was more expensive than the money we were making out of it, the only thing that worked was it's a really good product and people loved it. So, we had an enormous viral growth. So, we actually had two years where we spent no money on marketing at all and we grew. Revenue grew by forty percent each of those years. Wow, that's amazing! And that was purely word of mouth. That's why one of the things that I value and look for most in businesses now is repeat business and word of mouth. Because if the product, if the product is good enough, ultimately the business will succeed. But if all you're doing is paying people to come, to, persuading people to come to your site once they buy once and they never come back, you're on hiding to nothing. So that's it taught me a really, really important lesson about the importance of repeat business and looking after your customers. Uh, and particularly in the last year or two when it's become unbelievably expensive to recruit customers. What we've, had, what we've seen is a, a wave of money going into e-commerce, but the same number of eyeballs. You've got the same number of eyeballs, but, but when there's more money going into it, you're just paying more money per eyeball. Yeah. And you know, I've seen businesses that were acquiring customers for £5, making £7 margin, and now the CPA has gone up to £9. End of business. That's it. Can't do it. So I got about four years in. I mean, we had... Let's say there, was, there wasn't just one point where we nearly went bust. There were five or six points where really the, the well was dry. There was nothing there. Now, we never actually had a point where there was any money in the bank. Again. It's just that our, overdraft, our overdraft reduced. And so it was, it was a, a usual kind of story. You know, a usual three-year business plan turns into a 10-year business plan. I mean, it's, now I see that as an investor, I see it all the time. But the one thing that kept me going through all of this was looking at the stats and understanding what my customers were doing. And I realized, I knew that even if we didn't spend any money on marketing, that our business would eventually grow and eventually we'd break through to profitability. And it was just a question of being able to cover the overheads until that happened. And, and so it was, I think, what got me through that period was really understanding what the, what the customers were doing and having the confidence that the customers were not going anywhere. And I had another a business on Dragons that I invested in Dragon's Den and as a children's party business. And we didn't have any repeat business for the simple reason that once you've done one science party, you want to do another party for your children the next year. So so although you might have a long list of customers, what you've actually got is a long list of people who will never come back to you. So whereas whereas with Moonbeam, every time we got a customer, we were adding layers, like varnish, you know, adding layers and layers and layers of, of, of customers on top of each other. And eventually... You end up with a business where even if you turn the tap off completely you've got enough good solid business there to keep going
1: true and i, I it would be remiss of me to not ask about the jingle when did that come into the story how did it come about and uh, and how pivotal was that that whole campaign to the success of the business
0: television was utterly pivotal to the success of the business because we had struggled to find a scalable form of, of customer acquisition up to that point and there's only so much you can do on paid-for search because you max out when you're when you're speaking to every single person putting those search terms in, and so so we maxed out on on paid-for search. A lot of affiliate campaigns were right, but they weren't they, they were they weren't huge. Um, so it was only when the, the one thing I hadn't tried was television. And television, if it works for you, if you've got a product that appeals to pretty much, it's, it's a broadcast product. So you've got to have a product that can actually be bought by most of the people watching it, otherwise you're wasting most of your money. And and with with greeting cards, yeah, eighty-five percent of the population probably has a reason to buy a greeting card in the next month. So it has quite quite wide appeal. And uh it was the one the reason I hadn't tried it up to that date was because it, it's quite lumpy. You have to spend I mean, I, to be honest, I thought it was more expensive than it was, but you've got to spend some money developing an advert, and then you've then got to buy a minimum amount of airtime to make it work. And that the, the entry cost in those days, probably about £100,000. And we, we finally got to a point where we had made some money through just through viral uh, growth. We had got to a point where we were profitable. and We had about £80,000 of profit that year, about 2005. And I figured if I spend all of that on a TV campaign, then either i know that it doesn't work, but we'll, we'll still survive because it's not our last, you know, we're making money or it will work. And what happened was that we spent, uh, I mean, interesting enough, one of the things that sparked me off to do it was that we had a tiny competitor who had started advertising on television. And I had been buying a card from all of our competitors every month and, and logging the order number and then subtracting one from the other and working out how many, so I knew how many orders they were getting. And this particular tiny competitor went on television, and they spent £50,000 and they got 5,000 customers. And I figured a £10 CPA would work for us because I, I knew it, although a card is less than £10, we knew what our buying pattern was and we knew that our customers would come back and spend £30 in a year. So, so £10 CPA would work for us. And that's really what gave me the confidence to try it. Uh, so I tried it, and indeed it worked even better for us. And that did transform my business because it went from being... Uh, 3 million turnover business to a 45 million turnover, but, uh, breaking even, making a small amount of profit, to 45 million and 13 million pre-tax profit within three years. And all the money that we put into marketing, we didn't raise any more money for marketing uh, because the money we, that we put in came, just came straight back. That's amazing. What a story. Well, whenever people approach me and they say, I want to spend 5 million pounds on a, on a marketing campaign, I said, well, what? Why don't you spend five thousand pounds and prove what it costs you to get a customer, and then let's talk about the rest? Because if your CPA is what you say it's going to be, then you don't need five million pounds because your money will bounce back and you can recycle it again and again and again. Yeah, hundred percent. So it's one of those things that people often do about marketing is that if marketing is, is successful, you shouldn't be. There is a, there's a cash flow issue with some businesses where you know initially you need to put the money in for the marketing, and maybe you don't get your profit back. You don't get that back in profit for two or three months, so you need to. Bridge the gap, but you know, if it's successful, it should come back. Logically,
1: yeah, I mean, it makes it makes total sense, and I'm sure there'll be lots of people listening to this sort of uh, rewriting their their budget accordingly. Hopefully, <laughs> were you the the mastermind behind the jingle? Because uh, it's obviously one of the most iconic uh, sort of things you'll hear on TV. It was
0: not. It wasn't my idea. We hired a small agency called Space City, and the, the guy who was running it said, "Well, I haven't been any jingles for a while." Because jingles come in, they go into fashion, they come out of fashion. And there had not been any jingles for a while. So he thought, let's try jingle. Let's see if it works. And I was a great believer that if you hire a creative agency to, to write an advert, don't tell them what you want, because it's what you're paying them for. And uh, we had all sorts of interference from our board about, about, oh, you should have an advert for this, or we ought to have Dawn French ought to be on it, or this. But <laughs> no, no, no. I, I said, no, no. We're hiring some expertise to let them get on with their job and don't interfere. And and they came up with that advert. And it was, it was probably one of the most successful direct response efforts for many, many years.
1: Definitely. Definitely. Oh, what a great story. What a great story. Obviously, a lot of people listening to this will either be founders or aspiring founders. And growing a business to sell is, is often what entrepreneurs aspire to do. So you achieved that, which is incredible. In order to do that, you obviously need a successful business. So, what do you think made Moonpig the success that it was and is? And are there any other sort of key learnings that helped Moonpig to scale at the pace that it did that we might not know about that anyone listening going on that journey now can kind of take and learn from?
0: I think the simple thing is first and foremost, you've got to get the product right. You've got to, and it sounds really obvious, but you've got to have a product that people want and then they want to come back and buy again. So starting off with the right product in the first place, or at least constantly listening to what the customer wants and, and making sure that you've always got the right product is the starting point of any marketing campaign, of, of any business really. And, and, and every business is really, every consumer business is really very much, a it's a marketing business. So the first point of marketing is get your product right in the first place. That's listening to your customer, understanding what they want and giving them what they want. Um, the, the next part of that is, is understanding is, is having a really good understanding of, of what your customers are doing in terms of repeat business and understanding the model. So if you spend if you acquire a hundred customers, what's that going to mean to you in terms of revenue for the next year or two years? And then you can then start to work out how much you can afford to spend to acquire a customer. And then the critical thing after that is is testing every channel and working out what the uh, the marginal cost of customer acquisition is for every single channel, uh, and then just picking off the low hanging fruit and spenders and, and People sometimes say to me that they have a business plan, they say, well, uh, we're planning to spend this much money on marketing. And then as time goes by, I say, well, you know, the marketing seems to be very successful. Why are you not spending any more? Because, well, that's what our budget was. We're spending our budget. And I would say, no, what you need to do is work out how much you can afford to spend per customer and then keep on throwing money at that. Uh, Because ultimately, it's coming back and making you a profit. You just keep on throwing money at it until the cost of acquisition rises. And, and that's that's always been that's always been my approach to a customer acquisition campaign is understand how much you can afford to spend and then and then work out how much can you can you scale that how much money can you throw at that one channel before you start to see an in, a slightly increasing cost of customer acquisition and, and that was that was really what myphi was, was down to is that we got the product right customers loved it and they were coming back mm-hmm. um, so we knew we could be very confident about customer acquisition because we knew we'd hang on to them
1: that's great advice. Before we continue with today's episode, I was wondering if I could ask you a small favor. We absolutely love sharing our guests' inspiring stories with you, and I can't thank you enough for being one of our loyal listeners. But feedback is so important. So if you have any suggestions on how we can make 40 Minute Mental even better, or you just want to tell us how much you love the show or a particular episode, then we would love to hear from you. So please head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm and leave us a review. We really, really appreciate it. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm. Thank you so much. And we can't wait to hear from you. And I guess alongside the amazing product, they're kind of getting the right channels right and the repeatability factor. Obviously, people is a big part of you know, success, as a company scaling, you need the right sorts of people in the right seats. It sounded like you had created a really fantastic culture at, at Moonpig as well. So was that was that also a big part of your success? And uh, yeah, we'd, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what it takes to build the right sort of uh, culture in a business.
0: I, th- I think first and foremost, you, you've got to hire people who are right for the job. And when you're starting out as a small company, you don't always get the best qualified people, but but if you hire the best qualified person, but your company is not the best fit for them, they won't stick around. So I always try to make sure when I hiring people that I I'd, I'd got about four or five years of growth for them in the business, because if you've got people for about four or five years, they add a lot of value. More than five years, they start to go stale. So, but less than two years, and they've spent the first six months learning about the company, and then they then you have a year and a half worth of value, and then they've moved on. So I think there is a if you get a good fit in terms of it matching their ambitions and you having enough room within the company to allow them to grow within it and then
1: let them get on with their job totally that's a really important thing is that you you know you invest all this time and effort in hiring great talent you need then need to make sure you give them the bandwidth and the tools and support to succeed in but but a lot of that is about letting them get on with the job right I totally agree.
0: It is. And I, and I think money should always be neutral. Money shouldn't be a reason for joining a company. It shouldn't be a reason for, for staying.
1: On the other hand, it shouldn't be a reason for
0: not joining either. So you've got to get the money around about right. You want to be at the market. And the reason why they're there should be because they're enjoying what they do and they enjoy the working atmosphere and they feel valued. And I think giving people the authority to get on with their job and to expand up until the point of optimum competency, because very often what happens is people, people will get promoted and promoted until they start to mess up. And then they leave them there. So you want to get them to the point where they're doing a job well, and then either you allow them to to step up, or they step sideways and they go somewhere else. But as long as you've got four or five years of work out of somebody, then that's a you know that's a meaningful contribution.
1: Definitely. Well, Nick, I think you you, you set out quite early on with Moonpig that you were going to you know scale it to sell, and there are going to be people listening to this wanting to know you know learn from that experience because it's uh, it, it's obviously a, a long and uh, winding road to get to an exit. For anyone that's going through that process now, can you just share any thoughts or advice? Was there anything particular that you wish you'd have known about before you sold Mean Pig to, to Photobox in, in 2011?
0: Well, I think what the, the first thing that, that you have to think about is there's always an assumption that you're going to sell, or often there is an assumption that you're going to sell. And, and you have to ask yourself do you, right at the very beginning, when you're choosing your investors, you've got to work out if you take on institutional money, you're going to have to sell. Because if you take in venture capital money, they have a timetable. You're going to have to sell at some point, or you're going to have to buy them out. Very difficult to buy them out. You're going to have to sell. And so that doesn't give you the option of thinking, well, I've, I've, I've created this amazing company with an amazing group of people. We, I could carry on doing this forever. And I mean, personally, I don't think, I think part of the reason for selling, I didn't actually have any institutional money. I only had angel investors. And all of my investors did say, look, we, we were throwing off enormous dividends. I think we were making about Taking up about ten million in dividends a year, so the, the investors were, and the, we'd only invested a t- total of two and a half million in the business. So, so it was making 40 total investment every year in profits. So the investors were very, very happy. They were saying, "Look, you know, uh, you can carry on doing this, or you can sell. We don't, we, we don't mind." I chose to sell partly because I think I'd reached the point where I had done everything that I wanted to do with the company, and I don't know that I was necessarily adding anything to it. And there's also an issue of having 95% of your net assets tied up in, in one business. And you only have to look at a time like COVID to see how many businesses completely went down the swanee, utterly reliable businesses that just got ruined by by something like COVID that you didn't expect. Or, or, you know, recently I was thinking, had I decided to stay in Russia and build a business in Russia, what, what would I have now? Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: So a little bit of a security. So, so there's an element for me, there's an element of, of one wanting to move on and Force myself to do something new. Two was a question of, of, of just wanting that stability of knowing. Right, I've locked that away, and that's that's that, and feeling less exposed. But I do look back at it now and think. Um, actually, there's a real. There aren't enough enough people who think I'm going to start this company and I'm going to build it and run it and keep it for twenty years, thirty years, forty years. It's very hard to, to build another business after that. So, um, and, and what you do realize when you're running a business is that it isn't about the end game. Is not I'm going to sell it. I'm gonna start it and then in five years I'm gonna sell it. Running a company and building a company is a really joyful thing in its own right. You know, working with a team of bright people and watching something grow like that is a really enjoyable experience. And so so the first starting point is you work out whether or not you want to sell it or you don't, because that's fairly important. And then if you do, or if you have taken investors that have taken on an investment that means that you're gonna to have to sell it, then you know I, I think we started we had a two year process. Uh, we started speaking to Other companies, other companies that we knew would be interested in buying us, and I started that process of 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 having a chat with them and 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 talking about things we could do together,
1: you know, that kind of thing. Bit of flirtation. Flirting, yeah, I was going to say it's a dating game. (laughs)
0: Well, it is because because very often a lot of the people who could buy you, if they're not aware of you, then you won't be on their radar screen. So it's important to important to make sure that you're on their radar screen and. um, and then, and then we we had a two-year process, and I, I used a corporate finance advisory company to to manage that process. And I think we spoke to about twenty-six different potential buyers before we sold.
1: Wow, I mean, you spent ten plus years, blood, sweat, and tears scaling the business, building it from the ground up. We really discussed. There were moments where it looked like it all might come undone, but eventually, you got to this amazing stage where you you exited it. It must have been quite difficult at that time to actually know what to do next, because I guess your whole life has been consumed in in Moonpig. So what did it feel like to actually achieve that milestone that you have been building towards? And how did you then sort of tackle what to do next?
0: Well, I felt great to get it over the line. That was wonderful. But it is a little bit like sort of finishing your A-levels. You're looking forward to that moment. Then immediately after that moment, you think, well... <laughs> Well, what do I do now?
1: Yeah. And um, was that deflating in any way? Because you hear mixed things, don't you, Ben? Well, I mean, no, 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 so I, I went off, I went off, I did a bit of traveling and,
0: and relaxing for a, a, a few weeks, as you need to do. And it's very easy to get sucked into lots of different things because if you're not doing anything full time and people think, oh, well, you know, next, next, next available now. So would you like to do this? Would you like to be the non-exec director here? Would you like to do that? But the one bit of advice I'd give to people is, is be very, very careful with calendar commitments, because it's very easy to join a board here and a board there. What you realize after a while is that every single week is punctuated with a two-hour board meeting, which you may or may not say something useful, but may not. And it's sod's law, that the one week that you want to go skiing has a board meeting right in the middle of it. Uh, So I'm I'm very, very wary of joining boards now. I mean, I, I also take the view when I invest in companies that if I'm on the board and the company doesn't really want to listen to what I have to say, then it's relevant whether I'm on the board or not. And if they do want to listen to what I have to say, then again, I mean, I can have a chat with them before a board meeting and they can take those ideas to the board meeting. So so it's also <laughs> irrelevant whether I'm on the board or not. What I've realized in companies is that real power in a company comes from shelving. And um, a real influence comes from having good ideas. And real power in a company comes from your shareholding not your, not whether or not you're a director. And, and it's easy to get sucked into lots, of, lots and lots of different things. And, And having 10% of 10 things is twice as much work as having 100% of one thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, that's that's, that's very true. You ended up, after you'd taken a bit of time out, you ended up becoming CEO of a charity. So what what attracted you to that sector, which is obviously very different to to running Moonpig? And what was it like from the transition from building and running your own business to then becoming a CEO of someone else's business? Because as a, as, a, as a solo founder myself, having run my business for 10 years, I'd find that a very odd transition, or very difficult probably to kind of adapt to.
0: It is extremely hard. So the first thing is uh, going from being a founder to running someone else's thing. Uh, the reason I did it, by the way, is that I, when I sold the company, I put quite a a chunk of the money into a charitable foundation. And I wanted to learn more about how to do something useful within the charity sector. And to do that, you've got to put the time in. You've got to learn. And I was given the opportunity to take over as CEO of, of ARC, which was uh, Absolute Return for Kids, which was a, a children's charity. It was doing a variety of different things. It was doing a little bit of, of, of child protection in Romania, uh, health projects in, in um, Zambia, and also running academy schools in the UK. And it was a, a really, really interesting experience for me to to, to roll up my sleeves and understand the reality of, of running a, a, a charity and how things work. But it was also an interesting experience in that it was an organization that had been set up 10 years ago by a bunch of uh, hedge fund managers who were utterly passionate. They put a lot of money and time and effort into building this. And you have to be respectful of someone else's baby. Whereas when you're running your own company, you, are, you, know, you have much more freedom to, 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 to move. So I did find that quite difficult, actually, having to get buy-in from 10 different trustees for, for, for ideas. It also made me realize that I'm actually much, much better at running my own thing. I, I prefer that. I, I can do it, but I, I really do prefer to do my own thing.
1: No, fair so enough. So I did that for a year,
0: and then I just became a trustee, a non-exec trustee of it, and I remained there for another four or five years, which was very interesting and enjoyable. But I realized that I think once you've spent a long time being an entrepreneur, it's, you're quite difficult to tame and <laughs> yeah. um, become quite maverick.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, you're still heavily involved in, in the charity sector. So uh, do you mind just sharing a little bit about some of the other projects you're involved with and the sort of impact you've been able to have? Because, I, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people that talk a good game when it comes to philanthropy, but, but I know that you've done a lot and had a really big impact and it's something you really care about. So it would be great to understand a bit more about that.
0: Well, I, I've had a, a couple of things I've been involved in. One has worked well and the other one hasn't. So there were two things that I wanted to get involved in. One was literacy in sub Saharan Africa. And so I got involved with a business called Mwabu, uh, which actually my chari- the charity invested in an ed tech business called Mwabu. And the idea was that we would develop primary school curriculum on a, on a tablet um, for uh, rural schools in Africa. And I think perhaps the greatest learning I got from that is the theory is all very well. The reality is that the biggest difference that's going to make to a child is the teacher. And if you don't get the teacher, getting the teacher to buy into the technology and adopt a technology that they've not used before uh, is, the, is the biggest hurdle. And then you've then got to train them how to use that technology effect- effectively. There is no easy solution. I mean, you often talk about dumping a whole load of, of tablets, you know, in a, in a outside a village and, 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 you know, five a year later, there are five-year-olds who are coding. I actually. There's very scant evidence for that. What actually, what you really need is you need good buy-in from schools to be able to incorporate this into schools, and it's much, much more time-consuming than, than you might imagine. So that's still going, and it's still doing good work, but that was considerably harder than I'd imagined. But I did learn a lot about what works and what doesn't work. The other thing is that I looked at it from the, at the very beginning. I looked at the charity from the point of view of, of uh, trying to develop a strategy and working out how can you relieve the most human suffering with the money that you've that, that, the got? And There are a lot of causes that, there are, a lot of, there are diseases that kill people and, and a lot of money has gone into HIV, um, TB, malaria, uh, things that kill us. Um, because it's nice and easy to count the number of lives you, you've saved. And then there are some conditions which are debilitating, utterly debilitating, but they don't kill you. So things like river blindness or schistosomiasis, which is something which is a hideous condition to live with, doesn't kill you. So, uh, but you massively improve the quality of someone's life. And then the one that I chose in the end was obstetric fistula. So an awful lot of particularly happens when young girls give birth, probably a little bit too early, and and it creates a and that trauma of that can create a fistula, which is basically essentially a hole either in the urethra or the the, the um, in the rectum, which it causes them to affect essentially uh, be doubly um single or doubly. It's in, and it's horrible. And as a result of this, if it doesn't get fixed, they are then shunned by their Society, because they, because if, if you have poor hygiene or you don't have access to great, to, to good hygiene, you end up smelling, and it becomes very difficult to stay clean, and then you can't work, and then you you get ostracized from society. You lose your you lose your life, but you don't die of it. So you have an utterly awful life. And so the way, the approach that I took to that is that if you can transform that, if you can fix that relatively easily, and about seventy percent of septic fistulas can be fixed relatively cost effectively. Uh, for sort of about £1,000 or so. You've transformed that woman's life. And she could be 15, 16, 17. She can have another 30, 40 years of a perfectly normal life or 30, 40 years of being shunned, being a, feeling like a bride, not being able to go on public transport, not being able to work. Uh, and so to me, to transform 40 years of life is as good as saving a life. And um, so that was the one. And the, the charity that does that is a charity called Operation Fistula, which when I first came across it, and I was looking for a charity that did that and came across a chap called Seth Cochran, who'd set this up. And he was doing a great job, but it was very, very small when we started. And now it's, uh, he's got a big project to eradicate fistula from uh, Madagascar, first of all. But we've also developed a bit of technology, which is a, uh, a register a, a register that goes on a tablet. So it's a bit of software that goes on a tablet that enables all fistula surgeons to be able to record what they're doing and compare notes and understand the things that have worked and the things that haven't worked. Uh, so that, that's perhaps something that's worked very, very yeah. well. That's amazing. What I realise is that you know, if you are going to give your money away, it's very easy to scatter it around a bit here and a bit there and a bit there. But if you don't take the time to understand what's really happening with that money, it's not as, it's not as rewarding as when you, take, when you invest the time to understand the problem and understand what was actually the impact of what you did. And so I think if, if, you're, if you're a founder and you sold, if you're lucky enough to have sold a business for a reasonable amount of money, it's really important to have some sense of purpose as to what you want to do next. Because, you know, quite often, if you've made a reasonable chunk of money, you've got a nice house, you've paid the school fees and what have you, there's got to be a reason for doing more. And if you find something that you want to spend more money on and give more money away to, that's a, that's a, it's a very good reason for wanting to carry on and do more business. As Bill Gates pointed out, if Bill Gates had become a doctor, he would have changed the lives of hundreds of people. But by becoming a billionaire, he changed the lives of millions of people. And so if you happen to be making money and that's your thing, then it's
1: yeah. there's totally a reason agree. for carrying as. His- yeah, no, absolutely, no. Well, it's it's, it's great to hear about uh, these these uh, philanthropic uh, initiatives that you have got, and it's clearly having a really big impact to many people. So, yeah, massive kudos on that. And uh, I know the other thing you got into, sort of post Moonpig and post your experience as a charity CEO, was a, uh, angel investing. And as part of that, uh, I know you you uh, may be known to many of our listeners uh, as one of the uh, Dragons on Dragon's Den, which is obviously a hugely successful show. So tell us a bit of, uh, a bit about um, why you ended up sort of angel investing and how was that experience of being on TV? What's the true experience of Dragon's Den? What happens when the, the cameras stop rolling?
0: Well, I, I've been angel investing since about 2008. I made my first angel investment in about 2008, long before I sold the movie. And partly because I thought it, it's kind of fun to pitch it's a form of gambling, to be perfectly honest. I mean, angel investing is a bit like gambling. You're using your knowledge of form and the form of those entrepreneurs. It's exactly like betting on horses. Some of them win, some of them don't. And it's kind of fun. So I've been doing that for quite a while. I probably made about 10 or 15 before I did Dragon's Den. And the BBC approached me. And I think, I think someone had seen me give a lecture or something at the British Museum, at the British Library. And, and uh, so I was asked to go in and, and do a sort of screen test. And, and then they said, would you like to do it? And it was great fun, really good fun. It's about as realistic as a business program can be, while still being entertaining, because these are real businesses that people have set up. These are businesses that are uh, they're real businesses; they've been running them for two, three, four years, sometimes more, and it's real money. You know, this is that that the, the, the uh, we have to put our own money into into these businesses, and then we then have to look after them and, and try and help them do something useful for that. So, it's, so it's pretty it's pretty real, and it was great fun to make. It's very the easiest television to make because you sit back. I mean, I. I do what I normally do at my my day job, which is people approach me and ask me to invest in their companies, and I listen to what they have to say, and I ask lots of questions. And, I mean, you don't have to act. That's what we normally do. So, yeah, it's very fun. And I I listened to about, uh, I guess we did uh, about 100 pictures per series, and almost all of those pictures that get recorded actually get shown because people often say, well, surely they only show the best ones. It's very expensive to make, so they, they want to make sure that if they can include them in the series, they will include them in the series. They only usually miss out about one or two in each series just because they're too dull or it just goes flat.
1: And I think you made six investments in, in series 13 alone. So, which were the founders or companies that stood out to you then and, and why? And, and, and I guess on the flip side to that, it'd be good to know if there are any big regrets you have from the show.
0: Um, I made, well, I mean, I made, I think I made 14 offers in total across the two series. Of those, about, of, I think, eight turned into deals what you find is that about 60% of the deals happen. And sometimes that's because the entrepreneurs, in reality, they just want a bit of publicity. They don't really want to give away equity cheaply. So they will find an excuse to wriggle out of it and not do it. And then sometimes, as a dragon, you find that what they said in the den doesn't actually stack up when you do a little bit of research and you think, hang on, this is, this, this is, this is this, the real situation is not at all what you said in the den. And sometimes that, that falls through. So it's about 60% of them actually turn into, into businesses. And there was a great business called Double, which was a double dating app came on board. They were all very, very bright, very enthusiastic guys, very smart. And they came up with something which they, was a, just a better form of dating in the sense that you would go, to a pair of guys, a pair of male friends would, would team up with a pair of girls. They'd go out for a drink together. There'd be a bit, bit more banter because you're with your friend and and also a bit more security in the sense that you think, well, there are two girls there and two guys, go- So everyone's likely to be better behaved. And at the end of it, there wasn't the same level of rejection that you might have to get at the the end of a. You know, is this going to go on? So, if if two of them like each other, then that would happen. And if not, they had a nice evening and had. And it was really, really popular. And in fact, at one point, we even had a a, an outbreak of of customers in 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 New York. About thirty thousand people using the site in New York, and never even none of us had ever been to America. No promotion in America. It had just happened virally. So it was all being used. The problem was. That, that was the freemium version. That was the free version. We couldn't get people to pay for it. And this goes back to an earlier point I made in, in, in our chat about, about the amount of money that gets invested in technology and stuff gets given away for free. If you give away too much too early, you're providing a wonderful service to people. But if you can't pay salaries, it's not a business, is it? And so we were faced with a choice after a while of, we had an increasing number of users, but to get to the next stage, we'd either have to put a couple of million pounds into it and really throw a lot of money at customer acquisition, or stop. But the reason we didn't put the money in is because we just couldn't see the conversion from the free to the premium.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. And that's a, a familiar tale, really, isn't it? It's, it's really interesting. I mean, you must have seen some 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 incredible companies over time. I mean, when you look at your portfolio now, and when people pitched you, what are the types of companies that really excite you? And what do you look for foreign founders when they're pitching, just in case uh, there are any listening to this uh, uh, sort of going to be shooting you an email afterwards?
0: I think what I look for most of all is realism, because I, I too often I see business plans where someone is projecting that their company is going to go from you know, zero revenue this year to a million next year and 400 million in year three. And you think, well, you don't need to prove to me that you can give me 400 times my money. What you need to prove to me is that you understand business and you're realistic about what can be achieved. And in which case, you just ruled yourself out because that isn't going to happen. I'd much rather see someone where some, some, someone says, right, it, this is what I think is going to happen. This is the evidence that I'm using for that. And this will give you, you know, if, if all goes well, I've given you a reasonable grounds for for, for for believing that you might make 10 times your money over uh, over four years. And that, to me, shows that someone is realistic. I, I like people who are realistic. I like people who don't exaggerate. I very frustrating when people exaggerate about things they've done. They say, "Well, I founded this company. I was the founder of this company." And I look up. The first thing I'll do when I'm when I'm looking at that is, is go into a company's house, quickly check and think. Well, if you weren't on the cap table of that company at the beginning, you were not a founder. So <laughs> why say so? You
1: know, it's very easy to get caught up with that thing. sort of stuff. Yeah, I'm so so true. I don't know why people
0: yeah, do it. It is so. And the people who are more realistic. One interesting statistic I've come across recently is is that uh, women entrepreneurs are less prone to exaggeration and therefore their businesses are more likely to achieve what they said they were going to achieve because they were more realistic in the beginning and uh, that's one of one of the changes in my strategy for investing in more female entrepreneurs because the chance of success is actually greater for that reason so i what i don't like definitely is massive exaggeration unrealistic exaggeration i want to understand that people are, are humble enough to understand their own limitations uh, but bright enough to be able to learn and
1: take it and grow Great advice. Great advice. Thank you, Nick. Well, we could chat forever, but we're sadly at, at the end. And uh, we've got a few wrap-up questions that I'd love to to pick your brains on. So uh, in one sentence, uh, what does the future hold for you now? You've obviously achieved so much, but what what, what does the future hold? Well, I, I'm, I, uh, I
0: spend a lot of my time working at what I'm going to do when I grow up. And, uh, <laughs> like <and> Peter pan. <laughs> I, I, I realise I, I perhaps should have, should have grown up a long time ago. But what I would like to do next is, and I, I have now have much more of a focus on low-carbon technology, and uh, I, having SolveMovic, whatever I do now, I like it to be socially useful. I like it to be a business that is doing something useful, for, albeit that it could be for the environment, it could be for health. And so that's the area that I'm quite focused on at the moment. How do we change our heating systems um, to, to low-carbon heating systems, which is no simple issue, or perfectly doable, but it's not simple.
1: No, great, great to hear. That's what the future holds for me. I think. Oh, very exciting, right? So, well, all the best with that. And at the end of your career, what would you like to be remembered for?
0: Having done something useful, I think I'd like to create businesses that people that that it, it, it's. I look at moving. You brings a lot of joy to a lot of people and um, makes people smile. I mean, it, it's you know, it doesn't it doesn't doesn't cure cancer, but it certainly makes people smile. And I'd like to be remembered for creating businesses that are that 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 are that are useful and um, that people trust.
1: Yeah, and I think. I
0: think you've already done that. <laughs> you can be very, very successful, but, but having ripped people off in the interim, and I just don't think that's uh, something to be proud of.
1: No, I I totally agree. And, you know, I brought a lot of joy to my uh, my wife for her birthday with a moon pig card with pictures of my daughter and us and, you know, happy man. And it, it must be uh, very rewarding to know that you've, you know, they just bring that so many smiles to people's faces up and down the country. And um, I think that that legacy will live on. So that's, that's just a wonderful thing. This is the 40 Minute Mentor, Nick. Do you have a mentor? And if you could be mentored by one person, dead or alive, who would it be and why?
0: Well, over my the time, the period that I was running Moonpig, I had quite a few um, investor directors, and I call them investor directors, they weren't non-exec, they were theoretically non-exec, they were, they were non-exec directors, but they were they were there because they had put money into the company and they had something useful to say about how the direction it went. Every single one of them said something. I had Tom Chandos, David Noble, um, Lorne Dugan, and Duncan Spence in particular, were all non exact directors who individually made, or every, every one of them did something which saved the company. And they were people I could turn to also to ask for advice. As, a, as an entrepreneur, it's a very lonely experience when you don't have anyone to talk to with, within the company about the fact that you don't think you can pay their salaries at the end of the month. But that's not something you really want to share with your team. So it's very useful to have, to, to have that. And actually, I remember, off the top of my head, I can't think of a single other of, of person. There, there are plenty of people out there that are useful for bouncing ideas off. But I also think the entrepreneurial community itself is is wonderful at... Uh, it's a very supportive community. And I I, uh, I have... Dozens of other entrepreneurs through organisations like Founders, uh, where you just get together for a casual bit and you swap ideas, and or just download, or, or you know, there's all sorts of all sorts of of support that you get, and that kind of mentoring I think has been has been the most useful. It's Just having other entrepreneurs to talk to.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't couldn't agree more. And I'm attending a founders event tomorrow, and I can't wait because I think sometimes the best thing for founders is to speak to other founders, and whether it's uh you know crying to a pint or, or bounce ideas off each other, it's just somebody that's going through that experience is is super important. Uh, thank you, thank you, Nick. And, and and finally, what what piece of career or life advice would you like to leave our listeners with?
0: I think first of all, don't be worried about don't be worried about early failure. Because sometimes failure does enable other doors to open up, and and I always say this to people going through going, going through uh, going through their A levels that just because one door slammed in your face uh, doesn't mean to say that's the that's that's the end of it. Another much more interesting one might well open up.
1: What a great place to leave it! Thank you so much, Nick, for being a forty-minute mentor. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I, I'm sure our listeners have too. I'm sure they've taken tons from it. So uh, thank you very much for your time, and uh, yeah, all the best for the rest of the year. Been a pleasure, thanks very much. Bye bye, thanks, Nick. Cheers. If you're like me, you'll have used Moonpig a lot, it's a truly iconic brand. So, hearing the story behind its success and the challenges they had to overcome, I found super fascinating. Nick is exactly what you want from a mentor, he's experienced with a strong track record. He has tons of great advice from the challenges he's overcome. He's refreshingly candid, which I really appreciate in a mentor. And he gives insightful and importantly actionable advice. I'm sure his approach to customer acquisition and retention and what to consider when you're drawing up your marketing budget will have been very useful to many of you listening. As well as thoughts on what to look for in startups. And I'm sure any founders out there raising capital will have benefited a lot from his advice on what he looks for when he angel invests. I really hope you enjoyed Nick's mentorship in today's episode as much as I did. Before I let you go, though, I also wanted to share another podcast recommendation with you. The Career Happiness Podcast, hosted by careers advisor and business owner, Soma Gosch, who supports women and parents of teenagers with career advice. In a recent episode, Soma spoke to Catherine Munkham about how Catherine has created a portfolio career through her apprenticeship in marketing. With more young people now opting to do apprenticeships, I found this conversation so informative and a really insightful look into how apprenticeships are changing the landscape of work. Just look for The Career Happiness on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and have a listen that's all for me today. So please join me again next week for our final episode of this series featuring a former MP, DE&I leader turned tech exec. It's one of my all-time faves, so I can't wait to share it with you. So make sure you don't miss this upcoming episode. Simply hit subscribe on Apple or Spotify, and I'll see you there.